0: Welcome back to Edinburgh Film Podcast episode 21. In this episode I chat to Patrick and Jessie who are currently finishing their master's degree in film studies part-time here at the university. We talk about their dissertation topics and research process and we finish off by discussing the importance or non-importance of academic language in academia. Both Jessie and Patrick were on the podcast last year so if you're interested in hearing about why to study film studies with Jessie or if you're interested in hearing about Patrick's fascinating film lists then go ahead to Media Hopper or iTunes and look for Edinburgh Film Podcast there. There's a good backlog of episodes from last year with Emily so feel free to scroll through those episodes. Before I forget we are of course brought to you by Film Studies Department here at the University of Edinburgh and now let's get on with the episode. So do you want to introduce yourself? First? Oh yeah, good I, idea. I think we both had you on the podcast already with Emily when she was doing yes. here last yeah. year. Yes, um, But just to, to give a Whoever is listening, if anyone's listening,
1: ever. <laughs> give them a refresher. So we have Jesse here and Patrick here. Hello, I'm Jesse. Um, in my second year of part time masters here, and looking forward to it being done now. Really, hello,
2: Patrick. And I'm Patrick Callahan. I'm also like Jesse, doing part time second year film uh, masters in film studies and. I'm really enjoying this year particularly because you don't have to do difficult things like film theory and film philosophy, Mm. so I've been able to explore film auteurs and film and gender, which have been brilliant. Mm. And now, looking forward to getting stuck into my dissertation.
0: Speaking of, Mm. um, I would like to talk to you about your dissertations and what you're up to, what stage you're at at the moment, because when did you finish classes? Um, End of April. That, that's my life, yeah. now, isn't
2: it? And we, uh, our latest deadline you know, was 1st of May, which was to mm. submit our dissertation proposals.
0: Yeah, so now you have about three months until August, is it? Yeah, yeah. August
2: the 8th, I think, is the deadline. Mm.
0: It's yeah. the 8th? Mm. I thought it was the 15th. Yeah, because it was the like 15th last year. <laughs> oh, that's why! <laughs> <right. sighs> I knew there was a reason that date stuck in my head. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what are your topics and how did you... Can you talk me through <clears throat> the prices of, like... When was the first moment where you're like,
1: this is what I'm, I'm
0: going to do? And I'm 100% certain that this is what I want to be focusing on. And because you've been doing it for, for the degree for two years rather than one, has it been quite a very easy process where in, in the first few months you're like, got it? <laughs> well, exactly I, I, I think do.
2: just in my um, past uh, dissertation topics were entirely polar opposite, weren't they? In that y- y- you were quite last m- minutes in deciding <laughs> yes. what your subject was. Whereas, as you, <laughs> the you say, I've been. Mean,
1: before my. Yeah. PowerPoint presentation. I finally decided. It wasn't <laughs>
2: whereas I, at the beginning I was of the also
1: presenting the first week, oh, which
2: I didn't want, but you know, yeah. And whereas I've I've taken my dissertation topic from an essay I did last year um, around a western, so I, I that started germinating in my mind about how I could um, do that in my dissertation as well. Mm-hmm. So mine is around westerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm um, probably one of the last British generations to grow up watching Westerns mm. on, uh, on TV and on Saturday afternoons because when I grew up as a kid, there were three TV channels, there was no cable, no DVDs or, or VHS, mm. so you watched what was on TV. Yeah, uh, so I watched lots of Westerns, I don't think people do now because they've got much more choice. Mm. Um, so yeah, so the, the chance to write about Westerns for me, I'm um, really it, it excited me actually. Um, and so my path to that was I did an essay on a particular western and a very nice tutor pointed me to a book which I can actually see second down on that uh, list called Six Guns and Society by Will Wright which was written in the early 1970s. So he looked at the western genre and the myth of the western man and then he analysed 66 westerns from the 30s to the sixties, late 60s and kind of drew up a taxonomy of what makes a western how the western has changed over that period mm. so my dissertation is going to look at the 2010s and the westerns that have 20 westerns that have been um released in 2010s and see how that fits with the taxonomy and look at, look at how the western myth has changed as well if it has mm, yeah. and uh, and there's i think the last thing is there's clear evidence that westerns have be, become more hybrid so there's a lot of mm. cross genre westerns like western horrors western even western sci-fi which seems anachronistic at best, um, but there's lots of hybridity in westerns now, and I think that's going to form a key part of my analysis. So that's mine.
0: Because historically as well, westerns are one of the first genres that you really learn about, isn't that right? So it's one of the first sort of pretty typical most genres that yeah. came out in the it, it,
2: To a large extent, it, it's always been quite uncomplicated. Mm, yeah. It's it's you know a, a guy defends his town from bad guys, falls in love with the school mom, mm. and lives happily ever after. And that's changed a bit to people being brought in as professional. Ki- good roles, yeah, me? yeah, great <laughs> roles for I women. But that's one of, one of my hybrid areas is that w- there are films emerging with women as heroes in westerns, which never happened in the the core period of westerns. So there's uh, Jane Got a Gun with Natalie Portman. There's other ones as well. Yeah, so that's where I'm with my western uh, western. Station topic, and I've, so the next step is really I've got to watch twenty westerns pretty quickly, and see how that taxonomy that Will Wright develops fits within those westerns. westerns. That's my that's my next step. Mm. But I'm I find it very easy to watch back to back films, Isn't as there? you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: And so, Patrick, do you feel like you already have a good grasp on? or an idea of
2: what your result is going to be, or your conclusion? Yeah, there. I'm pretty, pretty confident about that part. Um, the part about the taxonomy and how that's changed and the hybrid nature of Westerns, I think the the, the bit about how the myth of the Western man has changed, I'm not sure yet. So yeah. like that, that, and, but there have been some really handy books on that subject written in the last seven or eight years, so mm. I've got a lot of reading to do. But yeah, I don't know what that will draw. What conclusions I'll draw from that yet.
1: Mm. How about you, Jessica? As Patrick mentioned, it was a bit of a last minute decision because the- I've had an idea for a research project for about four years now which is not what I'm actually doing for my dissertation because it's not a focus on a film or particular films Um, so I did- the day before I had to present about my topic I was still trying to figure out what it was and it was a- it It's a little bit of a journey but I saw this quote where Kira Knightley talks about how she, in her view, doesn't like doing modern set films because she feels that the characters she plays or is offered in modern set films are always, you know, getting abused or they're submissive. They have their, don't have their own agency. They're sort of not interesting and real women. And she finds more interesting women offered to her in period pieces. And that sort of made me think, Is that true? Does that follow? Are there, in fact, more interesting women offered as characters in period films than in modern set, as it were, films? And then that set me down that road. Road? That was halfway between road and (laughs) brute. I'm a professional. Um, And then the actual idea I have now, I have to credit a friend of mine for, because I was talking about dissertation ideas and this period film idea, and he said that he really liked the physicality of the characters in the Yogos Anthimos film, The Favourite. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, you're right. Because there is an interesting way in that, compared to other period films, physically these women are less restrained, they're freer, they sort of launch themselves around. There's Emma Stone kind of rolling around in the woods with Joe Alwyn, the actor. And she throws herself on the ground. She's sitting very childishly. Um, Rachel Weiss often carries herself in a sort of, in a way more often reserved for men. She wears like trousers, which I had never seen in a period film before. Women wearing trousers, was like, well, a period film set in that century at least. And so that was really interesting to me. And then I sort of, so what I'm doing now, <clears throat> my sort of working title is interrogation of female performance in period film. And I'm looking at, comparing, contrasting uh, The Duchess with aforementioned Kira Knightley and The Favourite. They're both films set in the 1700s. They're both um, based on women that really existed. They're both based around love triangles. But the performances are so different. And I'm looking at the way what that says about the progression of the representation of women within film, how that reflects on what society says, because films are never created in a vacuum. I feel very strongly about that. And they're always a reflection of the society in which they were made. And sometimes I feel even if something is set, even in the second century, it can reflect the year in which it was made, sometimes more accurately than a film set in the year, excuse me, it was made. So I'm very excited to go down that route. Plus, I love The Favourite and The Duchess. I have no qualms watching those over and over. Mm. And I'm also referring to other films such as Belle or Jane Eyre. I'm looking particularly at women-led period films set between 1700 and 1900 in the 2008 to 2019 period. Mm. Again, quite contemporary films.
0: Mm. And so how are you going to go about what sort of theories are you going to draw on? Because I think you're very specific about mm. the actual topic. But then, and with Patrick, I think it's it's very easy to say, well, you're just going to read about Westerns, right? <laughs> because there's so much work yeah. in it. But with that...
1: Yeah, there's not a lot... There's, well, there's obviously a lot of work around um, gender theory and genre theory. So I need... Although that's not, like, specific to what I'm talking about, I need the background of genre theory because part of what I'll need to do in my dissertation is define what a period film is. And then what I'm using is my definition for period film for this dissertation. Because that is some, there, there are a lot of different thoughts about what period film is. Mm. And so genre theory comes into play and then obviously the gender theory. And I'm really interested in the book in the Rosengalt Pretty, that's not the full, there's a subtitle, but I forget the subtitle, I've been just referring to as pretty. And how that looks into the way that things that are aesthetically pleasing or pretty or considered feminine have often been sort of dismissed as shallow and not like important or significant. And I think that period films, particularly the kind of ones I'm looking at, more of a sort of period drama or romance, are often dismissed because they're things that women like and throughout all of society things that are predominantly liked by women are mm-hmm. often sort of dismissed and sidelined. Same with melodramas as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah.
0: It, it's, it's a real
1: shame though because
0: they're still films, it's kind of it's as, as if you said, well action films are made for men and so those are not serious. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's so much work on action films and so yeah. how, how, what, what is that saying about men and women and, and men and women as spectators as well?
1: Exactly.
0: Mm. I kind of want to talk about your process in terms of how do you go about writing a piece of work that's so extensive as this. It's, it's 15,000 words, you're supposed to write it over about three months and mm. You really, you know, you don't really attend classes or anything, so I, like, do you, do you feel like the time frame itself, is that enough? Do you feel like that's sort of an okay time to, to make up a work like that?
2: I think we're in, we're in Jesse and I are in very different positions, and I, I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to work, so I can devote as much time as I need to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesse's got some work, and I don't know how you gonna squeeze it in, frankly, because okay. it, it feels like a lot of work, but... Um, I, because I'm really interested in the topic, it, it doesn't feel like a lot of work as mm-hmm. well. I'd be happy to devote a lot of time to it. Um, it's it's actually, we, Jesse and I have had a discussion about the nature of being part-time, mm-hmm. and because the first year of being part-time is you do two semesters, and then when, it, when everyone else, the full-time students are doing their dissertation, you just have that time off. Mm-hmm. But this year we're kind of suddenly like full-time students in mm-hmm. the third semester, mm-hmm. um, so it, there's a bit more pressure there definitely mm-hmm. on part-time students. Yeah. Um, but 15,000 words doesn't sound like a huge amount to me.
0: I mean, really, when you think about it, it's about three or four essays. Yeah. So And and we've, we've done, I think, I try to count it, and I think on postgraduate level, you do around... Oh, goodness, I can't remember the postgraduate level now, but I know that in, in my undergrad, I did 100,000 words of assignments. Hmm. So you already produced a book if you did an undergraduate, and postgraduate, I think, wouldn't be very interesting for my account <laughs> yeah but you know it, it's that you, you I know, know the you practice yeah. of, of writing um, quite a considerable m- amount of because just quantities you know but um mm.
1: yeah but they are on different topics this is the most I've had to write about one mm. thing and so how do you find that that's um, hard, or is that I don't know sort of half of me feels very overwhelmed by 15,000 words because mm. that's nearly twice what I had to do for my undergrad dissertation. It's nearly three times the longest essay I've had to do as part of the master's otherwise. Um, but at the same time, I know that in the grand scheme of things, it actually isn't that much and I'll probably come to doing the final edits and I'll have to be cutting loads out because I'll, I've gone over the word count, which is, I mean, hopefully I'll be over rather be over than under mm.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I, think you, that, I think if I think if I say this this will come off as very pretentious but I do think that if you do enough research yeah, then it is just about picking
1: what you need for mm. that particular product. Exactly. and then you'll always have more information to draw on so it's just and about it, like. it does become easier when you kind of break it down because we had to do a as you know a breakdown of potential chapters Mm. for the proposal and that does also make it seem easier because you're like oh okay so you have intro conclusion Mm. and then if that's x amount of words then you only have this many words left for the actual bulk and then that's divided again into three Mm. so breaking it down really does then it's much easier for me personally to think of it as three different essays that I'm gonna three different essays on the same subject which I'm then gonna put together an intro and a conclusion yeah that's a good way Mm. of looking
2: at it yeah yeah. yeah, I think the other thing is we've we've got touch points with our tutors as well, so we're not yeah. left to flounder. If we've got problems, exactly. we can go to the tutors yeah. and talk them things through with them. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a real help.
0: Okay, and so I kind of want to talk about academic writing, and this uh-huh. is what yes, <laughs> exactly. This is just what some, I remember you talking about this. in Are you do yes, <laughs> I talk Very about vividly. it so much. I I remember sitting down in medical school waiting for film theory, academic writing. God yeah. damn it. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> but why, <I'm> really, <clears throat> what, why I was really interested to get the two of you in is because you, when when did you finish your undergraduate, was it? Uh, 15,
1: you, I graduated 2015.
0: So not that long ago, but Patrick, you're coming into doing your master's quite later on. Yeah, I, I
2: graduated from my first degree 30 years ago this year. So. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah,
0: but it's interesting because I remember you talking about getting into the master's and you're talking about how you found the academic writing and, and even doing the readings mm. maybe a bit more difficult yeah and so could you maybe compare that or like what what are your views on academic writing in general um, i know that you feel very strongly about that
1: <laughs> <laughs> i do it's probably a little irrational and probably more to do with my frustration at not being good at it naturally um but i i've always struggled with academic reading and writing i just and again, this might be because I'm not great at it, but it just comes across to me as deliberately and unnecessarily inaccessible. And I just, I'm just not good with things that are sounding smart for the sake of it. And I'm like, couldn't you just say this normally? And then I would understand, and then we'd all know more. So I, it doesn't come naturally to me. It takes me a long time to sort of sit and look through a block of text and like try and figure out what it says. And then sometimes I can't figure out what it says, and I turn up to the seminar, and I'm like, I don't know. And then somebody says it to me in like plain English, and I'm like, oh, why didn't they just say it like that to begin with? Mm-hmm. And then when it comes to writing like that myself, again, I really struggle. I feel like I need a translation service because mm-hmm. my natural writing style is very sort of informal and conversational, and I feel like I need someone to come in and like translate that into smart writing for me. <laughs> Do you ever had um, problems
0: with that in academia In whenever you were doing your degree? Like, did, um, yeah.
1: So peop- my most consistent feedback has always been like, a little bit casual, uh-huh. make it more formal. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I really tried this time. <laughs>
2: I think our experience is actually really similar despite <clears throat> the 25 year difference between our first degree mm. graduations because I, I feel exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I think the, the difference is since I gr- I don't remember ever having a problem with academic writing in my first degree. You know, I, I did a joint degree with history and librarianship. And librarianship's very practical because it's a vocational degree. Um, but then when I went into work, I ended up doing a lot of um, content writing for websites and, and intranets. And one of the mantras there is, particularly for external websites, is you've got to make it simple to read. So the, so I don't know if the current version of Word has this, but there used to be a, you could, you could check what's called the Flesh Reading Ease score, F-L-E-S-C-H, otherwise it would just sound really weird. Um, So so it would tell you how much education, how many years of education you'd need to read the the text you've just checked. So it's a really good way of understanding that if you put certain words in, you need a degree, the first degree to read it, sometimes even more. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was doing a lot of changing text so that it was readable and that became kind of like my language of writing. So when I came here, um, I had some problems Um, onboarding if you want to call it that, Uh, in that I, uh, in my first essay I made the heinous mistake of doing something that's very useful in websites which is putting lists of things into bulleted lists and I got, I I got, I got such a, I got such a row for for doing that, I really did. So, (laughs) and there are simple techniques for making things more readable that you just don't need in academia. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've had to translate in my mind how that happens. Mm -hmm. I've also I mean, frankly in my last essay one of, where I got one of my best marks I deliberately put academic words in where I would my natural instinct would have been to make it much easier to read um, and I, hey I got a, a decent mark so maybe there is something in it, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, it I, th- I think help. I think we probably both agree if we could make all academics at the same time suddenly start writing yeah. in, in plain English or plain language whatever that language is you just... mm. I had a really really interesting conversation with um, William, who was doing the masters with you last year, and now on a PhD. And mm-hmm. because um, I, was, I was talking to him about how he get cool. how people who don't have English as the first language manage, mm-hmm. um, I think you're, you're you're not English as the first language, but you're exceptional, and that you sound very British, <laughs> um, and you have got great British, uh, English. But William said something really interesting that if you've got a block of really complex text, he puts it into a Chinese translator. And actually, it translates it in plain Chinese, in mm. effect. So it doesn't translate it in academic into academic Chinese. Mm. So actually, it's probably easier for Chinese mm. uh, readers to just do that. They get plain Chinese out of it. Mm. Um, that's whereas we've got, we haven't got an engine like that. Yeah. We can't well, do well,
1: so. Maybe you could put it into a translation. Translate it into, yeah, say, a, French, and then back to English. <laughs> that's never <another> worked. <laughs> <laughs> I might try it. <laughs> I actually had a
0: friend who asked me to translate... Um, something for her into english because she was just doing her it's kind of like a dissertation but not entirely it was just a, just a wee text and i struggled so much because i could not understand because it was slovak academic language
1: oh. i
0: struggled to understand what she was trying to say mm. in the first place let alone trying to translate it so mm. i think my problem will now be the opposite where i and very good with academic language because that was very forced on me yeah and I started very like I think my English got better as I moved to the UK but then also I just started uni as well so it was just like this massive jump to like oh I, I now understand the academic language and I just get better at it but it's still something you just
1: that, yeah like you learnt it just like as a part of learning English yeah yeah
0: so. but then also now I, I kind of feel like I still can't speak academically, if, if you know what I mean, sure. so I'm very yeah. good at reading it and writing in it, but it's something that's almost like an abstract skill where you can't really, you know, I wouldn't be able to um, be at a conference and just give this um, talk, as Dan Jakobot, who used to work here, unless he still does, he speaks very academically mm. as well, and it's, yeah. it's quite something to witness, um, but I can't really make that translation between what is in my head and then how I... You'd you know, like me like to written. write it down first. Yeah, yeah, because it is a process. It does take a while to, to yeah. you know, write like, academically. But, um, yeah, so I wouldn't be able to be an academic in, in my own language anymore, I don't think, <laughs> unless, yeah. like, it, it would take a lot of time. Right. Um, but it's interesting to, to see how... You just like no, <laughs> just, I don't. But I think because it's partly because you already have that experience with your own language, probably where it is simple, and then you like, well, why oh, this just why does mm. this need to be so complicated? Yeah, I,
1: just, I resent it. I think is the easiest way to sum it up. Mm. I resent you academic language. <laughs> but then, do you think there's a on sol- the record? <laughs>
0: <laughs> do you think there's a solution or there's um, a point to it at all,
1: or what? What because I th- I think that I mean. There is a point because maybe I'm not the best person to explain what the point is because I disagree with the point but I guess the idea is that it is this sort of next level of education and you kind of have earned entry into it but I just I just don't like the inaccessibility of it and for me especially with this film studies that I'm really passionate about I love film I love television I love talking about film and television and People people always look at me really funny when I say film studies because they, people outside of this, obviously, they have no idea there even is such a thing. And they're like, well, what do you mean film theory? And I love being able to talk to people about it. And so I want to spread it as far and wide as I can. (laughs) So I want it to be accessible. But I guess I can, I guess I can try from the other side to see that it is this kind of like, you've earned the knowledge. And you, yeah because you have spent say
0: five years or however long mm. to, to learn it and to study it which is why you get a degree at the end and also you pay lots of money mm. for it as well
1: which I um, we should install some kind of software in my brain for the price of tuition <laughs> yeah
2: but <laughs> I think, think I think true? you can do a master's and and probably a PhD without going down the full academic writing perspective turning what you're looking at if you're looking at Philosophy like Deleuze and uh, then Mm. I suspect you can't avoid very very complicated words and sentences, (laughs) which is that's why it doesn't interest me. Whereas I think I I could I could see my master's dissertation being extrapolated to a PhD around that same sort of subject area, and I'm convinced I could do that without resorting to long words too too many long words, and I have to put a few in just to make them happy. Yeah,
0: Uh, but I I think you I. I'm pretty sure you had the same experience. Sometimes, when you, because you, you do go through some of the readings when you do a degree, you do find readings that are like Deleuze. That's, I find that I give up because I find that incom-
2: incomprehensible
0: yeah. to a point where I'm just like, this is too much. And it I feel like you just see where well, I'm like, it's, this is unnecessary. I, just, if you yeah. do have, I do like philosophy, but the, <laughs> I think philosophy is complicated enough. Yeah. For us it's the... not complicate it further by using this very complicated language. Yeah. Yeah. But um,
1: I feel it's the worst of all the culprits. Yeah. Academic writing ways. But then you have other
0: <laughs> academics that
1: do write articles that are very
0: simplistic and sort of very easy access, and some of them I find actually quite funny. And then you have some people who still use very sort of I... high level academic language, but you can sort of see the point and it's not pretentious. Mm. Mm but then you also have people who just use it and you know that you're reading through it you really and you're like, you're just doing it because you can and there's no point to it. So I do find that with academic language, I don't really mind it, but it does need to be purposeful yeah, as well.
2: Because yeah. um, I the think with philosophy, I found it wasn't necessarily that um, they were using unnecessarily complex languages. It's just the nature of philosophy that mm-hmm. y- you have to you, know, yeah, you have to explain yourself, your, what's going on in your mind as a philosopher. Yeah. And I, And any one person's mind can seem very confusing to some people Mm. and very obvious and uh, tangible to others.
1: Yeah, yeah. I wish there'd been a seminar where someone had told me why I should care what they say, because it's all well and good telling me what they say and what it means. I may not always understand it, but it's like, okay, but why does that matter? It's like, why does like so Derrida sat down wrote this really big book about a thing but why is what he says more important than what somebody else has said, but not necessarily written down.
0: Why why? Why should I care? Well and do you think you found an answer? Because this is something no. that I wonder from the time as well. And it's I okay, don't think it, I found an answer. And do you and think... I
1: want to know where the philosophers of colour and the women philosophers are. That is a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Um,
2: well, aren't okay. all philosophers, either German or French, which <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: probably means neither of those things are ever going to happen. But do
0: okay. you think it's different with philosophy and, say, film theory? So do you feel like there's yeah. a point to film theory,
1: but there's no point to film philosophy? I don't, I don't, say, I wouldn't go as far as say there's no point to film philosophy. Mm, but um, if, if we I, know, I know that, I'm pretty sure that me and David are on opposite sides of the coin here, where I consider film philosophy a part of film theory, and uh-huh. I think he's the other way around. And I think it is, I think it is interesting and worthwhile to sort of attack, for want of a better word, um, film and film theory from all different angles, and just because I don't really understand philosophy or completely understand why I should care what Derrida and Heidegger and Deleuze and Hegel and all the rest have said, it doesn't mean that other people shouldn't care. Mm.
0: And also I wonder if you see, at least that's what it was um, like for me when we did film philosophy, I also uh, found it very interesting because for me philosophy was, it wasn't film philosophy necessarily, it was mm. philosophy in general. And you do find that the more you read about stuff in general, especially in academia, those names do pop up quite a lot and it has oh, nothing yeah. to do with film. And so I wonder if There's it's... There's to it. Yeah, it? so I think philosophy is very a general term mm. that we can apply to pretty much any aspect of life yeah for sure and so I feel like maybe that's why it is important because it it does come up and it maybe does
1: make you appreciate life yeah. from a different perspective but... my issue is with philosophy as a whole not specifically mm. film philosophy yeah I think it is always good to unpack everything from every angle you can mm. what do you think about
2: you? yeah I'm I've never looked at philosophers before, so it was kind of a first immersion and it was difficult. Um, But there again when I look at at the previous semester when we did film theory, there were quite a few of those modules that were pretty difficult as well. Mm. So I I don't think it's just philosophers. Just reading what Antonioni wrote, a lot of that didn't make a lot of sense to me. (laughs) I was glad when that that, that seminar was over and I could move on to something that I might understand, like genre theory. But that's that's me. Um, you know, it's, it's quite interesting that on the day that I did my presentation about my dissertation on westerns, I was followed by a, a guy who his whole dissertation is about Deleuze. and i've been in, <laughs> yes. I've been in film and gen, gen, gender with him and he's just got his brain is wired completely differently to mm. mine so the I way he talks and it. understands things mm. I can't go anywhere near yeah. his level of mm. um, yeah. uh, work and I think it's important to appreciate that as well and
0: acknowledge that 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 whenever you and it, again, that's not just degrees and academia, it's kind of life as well, isn't it? But, but especially in academia, when you go and do your masters, even we were like, what, 20 in our class or whatever, and there are so many people from different backgrounds, and it's just important to, to and at th- that stage as well, to realise that, well, I did a dissertation on this, which was very specific, which is why I'm mm. doing something similar now, mm. but then someone may have a very different background, say in philosophy, which is not my thing whatsoever, never really had a chance to dig into it. And it's just appreciating that, that you don't need to know about everything. Mm. And if you do have your niche, the better, really, you, you're off. Because then you can go much deeper and that will become your mm. expertise. Yeah. Um. But it is a bit... I found it a little bit stressful almost to see how much people knew. But then that was because all that knowledge was brought together in yeah. one point. Everyone has their own yeah. strengths and yeah. weaknesses. Yeah. It's just like, you know, being able to take advantage of that and just go, okay, th- th- this is my thing. And I don't, not that you don't, you, you, you become blind to everything else, but it's just saying that this is not my thing. And that's fine because yeah. I have something else to work on. Well, that's, yeah. So you have
2: to be, you probably have to be practical when you're doing a, a degree, any sort of degree, mm-hmm. um, but particularly one where there are complex areas that m- you may not be familiar with. You, you are, so I imagine there are two different ways of looking at it. You can either go in and say, I must learn about everything that, that we're talking about or do what I did, I had to do. I had no choice, which is to worry about the stuff I don't understand, and and then in each semester there is suddenly there's a subject that makes sense, mm. and that's what I wrote my essay about. So I was really practical about it yeah. last year yeah. because I found both those um, modules really difficult, mm-hmm. um, but I found one in each that I could write about. Um, yeah. So with, with um, it was genre theory in, in film theory, and when it came to philosophy, it was the um, paradox of fiction mm-hmm. that suddenly yeah. made sense to me. Yeah,
0: I also think it's. <clears throat> well, when I was doing my master's, I was here <clears throat> for a year. So you really have... You don't really have that much time. And you're mm. doing... I think it's it's a few more courses at one time in one semester. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of have to... It's quite cramped. Um. And so you do kind of feel like... I definitely made those practical choices as well. I was like, well, this is what I knew most about. I did all the readings. I watched all the films. So let's write about this for an essay. Yeah. Because then I do feel like even though it was graduate level, it's much higher. And you can definitely feel that difference mm-hmm. when you compare it to an undergraduate level. I was... Can, like just save whatever it is that you really want to go crazy about for your PhD because then you will have three or four years to research everything around it and chances are you're going to dig into the little things that maybe you didn't really have time for or yep. didn't really yep. understand whereas you just kind of want to pass your master's yeah. and either yeah, exactly. save it for a dissertation or your PhD yeah. okay. I have two questions and then we can wrap this episode up first off would you ever consider doing a PhD and doing a PhD here specifically?
2: (laughs) For me it's uh, yes it's something for the future I'm not going to jump into it straight away Mm -hmm. Um, so my priority uh, over over this year has been to make sure I get up to a 60% mark for the whole course because that's what you need if you want to do it here Mm -hmm. Um, and I live in Edinburgh now I've I've moved here permanently notwithstanding that I've got a camp of animal travel um, (laughs) but I, I it will be here if I do it, yeah. Hmm. And it'll probably be part-time over 30 years or whatever the hell they allow part-timers to do.
0: But then they'll give you so much scope and time to really enjoy yeah. and take it slow. And it really just, just for, just, just for yourself, it really sounds like you would do it for yourself, rather than, oh I god, to yeah. This yeah. To be this, you know. My, my,
2: my dad's pushing me to say I'll do a PhD um, <laughs> because he did his when he was in his 60s. And, ah, okay. and yeah, he kind of likes the idea of, because my sister's got a PhD hmm. and he likes the idea of, Two of his kids having doctorates, yeah. but I won't do it for him. For <laughs> me. Yes. Very
1: um, I would never say never, but probably not. I just again just because me and academic writing are not best friends. Um, I just think I'd struggle with it. Do having to write eighty to a hundred thousand words academically. Um. But who knows, maybe in ten years' time I'll have forgotten how difficult academic writing is. Because I love I love the idea of doing a PhD, but again, I just don't know if I could actually get through mm. it. Um, as to whether I do it here at the at Edinburgh, I don't know. It would depend on where I was in the world, I suppose. Mm. And last question. And if I got the marks, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. If you had the money I and mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. all that. win the lottery, maybe. Yeah. Um,
0: and the last question is something that I... I, I I realise that I keep asking this. Everyone whoever I sort of interview, probably a good question then. Yeah. Well, I always... It, it's it's a stupid one. I love stupid questions. They're very simple. It's my favourite questions. But I always ask, what do you think is the point of talking about film in the first place? Goodness. Well, <laughs> it's just that I. What's your sort of instinct like? Whenever, whenever you speak to your friends and and you just and it's not on necessarily an academic level, but just like, why do you feel the need to. Go to the cinema and then go for a
1: drink and talk about the film. I mean, oh, this is gonna sound really cheesy, but I think everyone has their own personal reason why they like to do that. And for me, I, I've loved films and television for as long as I can remember, and um, I've always loved being able to share that passion with people. And, you know, I, I often go to the cinema alone now. But I love being able to go with a friend or two and then afterwards you sit down because you get to hear what... You get to say what you thought about the film, which is always nice to you know, be the centre of attention for a minute. And then you get to hear what they thought about it and you all have a different experience. They might be similar, but they'll, no one had exactly the same experience. And you're all spotted different things. And it's fun to be able to have seen a great film and be like, how amazing was that? And this bit and that bit and that bit and this bit. But it's also fun to see a terrible film and then talk to your friend and be like, how terrible was that been? Oh my God. When that happened, where did that even come from? This whole thing was a sham. Um, that's very, I suppose more academically about film studies. I think it's worthwhile because it's just a whole other approach to the world. And it's just a different way of understanding the world we live in. And again, it's, Society is reflected on screen and you can analyze a film and you can kind of learn something about Yourself or the people around you or the earth Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah I'd th- I, I agree with that in- entirely I think that a lot of people when they think about film cool. it, it, They might need to go and see a film more than once unless they've got friends who've seen it because then you can discuss it Because as you Jesse yeah. said there's so much that other people see in, in the same ways that people see philosophical writings in different ways and you can talk through those and get different perspectives. It's exactly the same with film. And yeah, I, it's great to talk to people about film. Uh, I hope having done a, um, a master's doesn't make me a dick when it comes to talking about films with friends. <laughs> you know, how much that reminded me of Renoir or something. You know, I must never say those words. <laughs> Because it's it's quite interesting, I I watch the film review on BBC News, it's only 10 minutes, it's a really easy snapshot, and mostly it's Mark Kermode who does that, and he talks about having gone to see most films three or four times, Mm. and he gets different things out of it, which sadly makes me think he's got no friends. Um, But there's there's another reviewer called Jason Solomons, who sometimes fills in for him, Mm -hmm. and he talks like a dick when it comes to film oh, no. because he always says something really pretentious at the end. Like, it reminds mm. me of so-and-so. Mm. Oh, and Mark Comer no. doesn't need to do that because he's a man of the people. I th- that's the way I, th- I see his, yeah. his very accessible uh, way of talking like, about film.
1: Yeah, I really enjoy his well, reviews. We can be his friends. Yes. I'll be your friend Mark. <laughs> do you <want> <laughs> listening, <laughs> listening, Mark? <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you for having Genius. us. Yes, It's been a pleasure.